Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Dr. Seema Berry. Seema was born in Kovno, Lithuania, spent her formative years in Israel, and now lives in the UK. She has an MA in Jewish History and Culture, University of Southampton, England, and a PhD in Modern Jewish History, University College London, UCL. Her doctoral thesis examined the Yiddish press in the interwar period. This was published later as a book by the title Literische Blätter and the Transformation of Yiddish. She has a keen interest in promoting and preserving Yiddish cultural heritage through research and education. She teaches at Yiddish at UCL and Yiddish language and culture at various levels in private groups. Her recent book, And What About the Taste, is the second part of a larger project to research and document her family's roots and heritage. The first part deals with her family's history in the 20th century, while the second part focuses on documenting recipes from her own and her husband's family together with her culinary additions to pass on to the next generation. Welcome, Seema. It's great to have you here um, and uh, excited to talk to you on the schmooze about this recently published book, which, um, again, I wish I were in the kitchen with you having this conversation. <laughs> this will happen. We will get into the kitchen together and we will cook together. Excellent. <laughs> excellent. Um, so. Full disclosure, uh, I was aware that you were working on this book as you were kind enough to send me some recipes to test. I know you knew that I was uh, someone who loved to cook. It was the pandemic. We were stuck at home with in need of recipes, all of us, um, and was really excited to get the ideas. So I guess it was probably almost two years later, um, unbeknownst to me, a published copy of the book, and what about the taste, landed happily, hand-delivered from London um, in my grasp. Um, so it's really exciting to see this come to fruition and to be able to speak with you about it. And would love to start by asking you how you started on the project. Uh, well, it, it sort of started uh, with a very basic idea of trying to pass on my recipes to my two sons. Both of them speak English, a little bit of Hebrew, but none of the other languages. Now, because I was born in Lithuania, I speak five languages and some of the recipes have been written down in various languages on various bits of paper and my sons will never be able to work it out. So instead of me sending them individual recipes, I kind of thought, well, why not put it all together, translate it into English, and then they can just have a copy of it. And that's how it started. Little did I know that it will actually evolve into a whole book of recipes. So that's what happened. And you mentioned this, your introduction, by the way, is really wonderful. I mean, it tells a family story and history so beautifully, and it's a compelling story. And you know that, that these, as you just said, were written in several languages. And I think that there's a lot to unpack in that sentence, um, just in terms of what I think is a very Jewish aspect of passing on our cult, you know, family recipes and all, both in terms of language. And then I'd love to have you speak a little bit about, you know, sort of um, how they were or weren't written down. Mm. Well, first of all, food is never just food. 
recipes are never just recipes. This is a whole heritage. This is a way of life. This is memories. This is uh, scents and flavors that you kind of absorb through either helping or cooking with your mother or father, depending on where you come from. And of course, in our case, um, in a way, those recipes were also a way to convey love. My mother wasn't very big on giving compliments, but you knew that if she cooked something nice, this was conveying love. This was her way to saying, yeah, I love you, I appreciate you, and you know, this is what I do for you. So it was very important. And of course, the kitchen is always the center of your home, at least in our home, it was the case. And it was so lovely to be able to actually get that from my mother because her being a Holocaust survivor, she wasn't always the happiest person. And in the kitchen, she felt kind of relaxed. And in a way, this was her way of perhaps even therapy in, in some sense. And for us, I knew that this was her, her happy place. So for us, it was lovely to spend time with her in the kitchen and of course learn from her because she was a fabulous cook. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up with a grandmother and a mother who loved to cook. Um, but I missed getting the recipes from them. I mean, I think so much of it is done in tandem where you're working side by side, but you're not realizing that at some point you're gonna wanna remember how to make that that one dish. And I found, I've talked to um, Joan Nathan, who is both a cookbook writer, but also more of an, a cultural or culinary anthropologist. And she also travels the world. Your, your recipes, Seema, are so infused with foods and from other countries because your family hailed, you know, has roots in other countries. And again, I'm curious sort of, about the fact that so many of us don't have any written document of these recipes and there weren't that many cookbooks, Jewish cookbooks. Jews and Yiddish speakers lived in countries around the world. Their families traveled. They picked up all sorts of uh, foods at, you know, where they were, you know, in the same way there was a diaspora um, that, you know, you, you, you pick up and, and things evolve. How do you find that all melding again into the, it's a very long question, but how do you find that melding into your recipes and what's unique to your family cuisine? Uh, well, um, in, in our house, most of the recipes were handed down to my mother from her mother. Now, of course, uh, later when she uh, became a married woman and a housewife and she cooked um, she actually drew on her memories of what her mother taught her before the war. And she was lucky enough to have a friend who was um, a, a, a patisserie chef. So the things that she didn't remember, he actually managed to teach her. So all the traditional uh, yeast dough uh, recipes and challah and all of those traditional bakes he actually showed her how to prepare and she learned from him. Now, she herself was a very curious cook. She really enjoyed uh, trying out new recipes. And 
once we moved from Lithuania to Israel, a whole new world opened to her, to us as a family. But that was, of course, reflected in the food that we prepared, because suddenly you have an abundance of recipes that include all sorts of exotic things like aubergines and avocado and, you know, different colors of peppers and all sorts of pulses that we didn't use in the past. And my mother being the way she was, she started learning about those ingredients and of course using them in her cooking. So it was kind of a fusion of things, improving what she had already and sort of continuing that tradition. And of course, one of the traditions that we always have is that each generation adds on to the previous generation. So it is not, um, not a big deal for her to just like pick up something new and incorporate it in, in something old. And we just went with it and it was always good. So why not? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think cel your celery root slaw, I'm not sure I have the name of that dish, but um, was one of the ones <laughs> that I tried and it's now become a staple. But again, to me, it was so interesting because I'm so, you know, sort of wedded to the idea that it has to be cabbage, whether it's green cabbage or red cabbage. And the celery root was nothing I grew up with, even though my mother was fairly sophisticated in her cooking um, and using uh, fresh ingredients. It's it's so interesting to see that that recipe. And I wonder how hard it was for you to recall these Um a bit and, and how much did you play around with them? I always play around with recipes, like quite often, especially when it comes to salads. I often stand in the kitchen and look at what ingredients I have and kind of think, what can I put together with what? And occasionally something different happens. And then I need to quickly go and write it down because next time I will not remember what happened. So there are quite a few recipes that actually involved in my own kitchen in that way. Uh, and again, you know, you have your traditional things, but then our day-to-day -day life is so different from our parents' generation. And of course, I not only lived in Israel, where I grew up literally, but I also lived in the world. I lived in South Africa. I also live now in England. And we travel extensively, all of us. And then you learn about the different recipes from different countries. And some of them are so nice, you really want to experience it again and again. So you try to emulate them. And, and sometimes you, again, you do the fusion thing. You take something that you like from one place, mix it with something from another place. And this particular recipe you are talking about, that is exactly what happened. I love coleslaw. This is one of my favorite salads. And I tried all sorts of different versions of it. And then I thought, well, why not try with celeriac? Why not? It's so lovely. Yeah. And, and you know, we suddenly discovered that actually not everything needs to be cooked to death. Some of the vegetables that we used to cook, nowadays we eat them raw. And when you eat them raw, they sort of bring with them a completely new world of tastes and flavors and smells. So that's what happens. So, so true. I was introduced to the idea of um, grated beet, raw grated beet, again, during the pandemic. And I love beets, but it was fabulous. Um, so when you were putting this together, I'm curious to ask, or when you were cooking with your family um, as a child, um, was there much back and forth conversation about 
oh, I like that in there. Or I don't like that in there. Or this is a favorite. Don't mess with it. Mm. Um, I tried to, to keep to the traditional recipes the way they were traditionally made. But, but of course, in the past, especially in Eastern Europe, because of the weather, we use different kinds of saturated fats, animal fats, goose fat, which today we don't really want to use in our food. So I did replace those. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the recipes that I sort of developed and, um, and incorporated into my own kitchen and my own way of life, they're different. They're fresher, they're different. And I try to play around with them. So some of them stayed as they are. Some of them evolved. As one things should do in our life. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that was fun for me with this book is that there is that fusion and as um, getting some of the you know sort of Middle Eastern into my cooking um, and the way that you use different ingredients has been really a nice eye opener. That there's something fresh and bright about a lot of these recipes. Um, I'm always fascinated by the difference between um, the matzo ball, the matzo ball that I grew up with in an Ashkenazi family, and one that has some Sephardic roots to it. Um, and I'm curious where you fall in terms of that. Um, well, uh, as you can see in the recipe book, the Litvaks, the Jews from Lithuania, have their own take on the matzo ball. Um, and our matzo ball, hod, and shome, it has a soul. Yeah, what is the soul of the matzo ball? It is a matzo ball with a filling. Now, uh, traditionally, it was made from goose fat and fried onion and a little bit of matzo flour mixed together and stuffed. Now, I don't use goose fat anymore, so I just made a lighter uh, version of it with olive oil, but it still has an eshome. It still has a soul. Yeah. Um, I love that. And of yeah. course, <laughs> it's it's just the the um, idea of it. You know, somebody came up with a great name. I don't know who it was because we always called it like that, but it's a Litvak thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I so. was totally intrigued by that when I saw that recipe. And I think you, you gave me a bit of an introduction to it. So, you, you know, the book for our listeners covers everything from starters um, to cakes and, you know, desserts, salad, soups, mains, um, and I'm curious, one, how hard it was to sort of decide on the final recipes that you put in there and also the most challenging or is there a family favorite? You will be um, interested to hear that not all the recipes went into the book. There are still recipes that are pending that I might add on if I do a second edition. Um, for various reasons. Some of them I didn't have time to try out enough. Uh, although I had um, a tester kitchen, I had some ladies who tried out the recipes because I wanted to make sure that they actually work for everybody, not just me and my family. Um, but, but the thing is that you can't put everything in and you have to make decisions, yeah? But my thinking was, that some of the recipes need to be very easy. Some need to be a little bit more difficult to prepare. And of course, some of the traditional recipes are a little bit more time consuming. 
Um, I wanted it to, to be a book, not just uh, for my family, but actually for other people as well, because it is so varied and it has so many different kinds of recipes. It's not just about tradition. It is tradition and life and the joy of nice food. And your children enjoy cooking? Yes, they do, very surprisingly, because when they were younger, they literally didn't want to go into the kitchen. But over time, they suddenly discovered that this is not just about food, it's a creative process as well. And they took on the creative bit of it, the creative juices sort of started flowing, perhaps something they might have inherited from me, I don't know, less so from their father, he goes in a different direction. So, um, and also it is nice for them to connect with previous generations and with our way of life via using those recipes. And you know, when you stand in the kitchen, you don't just cook, you discuss it, you bring stories into the uh, kitchen, you have things that you share. So for example, one of the things um, that my mother used to do when we were younger, my sister and I, was she used to cook something and she used to ask us whether the taste is okay. Perhaps something is lacking in the dish. And maybe we know whether I need to add on more salt or more pepper or any other spices. And you know what? It took me years and years to work out that this was actually a very clever way to teach us to taste and to adjust the taste of recipes. Yeah. So interesting. So, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you to tell that story behind the title, but that tells it. Um, and what a what an interesting thing to realize that she was engaging you in that way about the taste. Um, yeah. I have a memory of my grandmother. She used to make the funniest um, taste noise when she would taste something. Um, but yeah, she wasn't looking for anybody else to weigh in on it. Um, it was all according to Zelma. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and I do want to ask was there one recipe that you knew had to be central to this or was there one that was extremely challenging, but you wanted to get it in there? Um, well, the, the recipe I really wanted to put in there, um, it's the universal chicken soup, because I think that a Jewish cookery book or a cookery book that has Jewish dishes should have a chicken soup. And of course, we all know that our chicken soup is much better than everybody else's, right? So of course I had to put that one in. Um, the most challenging recipe in the book was surprisingly um, how to write the recipe for teglach, which is um, uh, again, a Litvak Jewish sweet that was mainly prepared for weddings and special occasions. Uh, Tegel is a small piece of dough. And this is a recipe which is um, sort of little pastries that are cooked, they are not baked, they are cooked in a syrup of honey and sugar and then coated in sugar and spices like ginger. And the thing with that recipe, it is not so difficult, it is just, how to prepare it. And if you don't actually stand and observe, it is very difficult to convey on all the intricacies of what color or taste it should be at this particular stage of cooking, etc. But 
I think I managed it because some people tried it out and they have managed to create the same recipe with success. It's a recipe that we actually ran a few years ago. Um, you were kind enough to do a piece in Pockentrager, our yes. English language magazine. And I have to tell you that it got such huge response because again, oh, really? it, yeah, it's so it's so fun because it it reminded a lot of people of their childhood. Um, and then a lot of people want to obviously share, well, you know, I, I do it this way, I do it that way. But it's such an interesting way. Food connects us in so many ways um, to our history, uh, just even a way of being at the table together. Um, oh, yes, so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think this book must have been an, an act of love for you. Well, you know, um, it's a little bit of a chutzpah to actually put together and publish a cookery book because I'm not a professional chef. I have never aimed to become a professional chef, but I cooked all of my life. And in a way, I just thought, well, if somebody doesn't like it, they don't have to buy the book or they don't have to cook the recipes. That's okay. I have my reasons why I'm doing it. And I do have enough experience in cooking because I really honestly have been doing it all of my life. And so, but again, you know, recipes connect us. And even in this short conversation, one of my stories triggered a memory of one of your stories. And that is how it goes. It is like, you know, the golden arcade, the golden chain of generations. You can see it in the, in the cookery book as well as in other recipes. And of course, sitting around the table and eating, sharing food, eating food, and talking about it brings about family memories, brings about childhood memories, brings about the feeling of something positive and pleasant in life. So I love it. Yeah. And, and my first introduction to you, Zima, was um, around a table in Boston where we were eating little um, small dishes, tapas, and um, yeah, again, it's so interesting to think back on that because I realized why you were so good at tasting and sharing thoughts <laughs> about what it was we were eating. And an amazing accomplishment to create a cookbook. Um, having having worked on them on the publishing side, it's just getting the testing done. And I can't even begin to imagine um, how you write down everything and go between, you know, measurements and things like that. It, that's a dedication, a skill, and again, um, a sense of, yeah, you know, but what about the taste? It's great. Um, so how can listeners find the book? Uh, well, um, there is a website uh, and on that website, it will lead you um, to the link on of how and where you can purchase it. Um, I can, of course, give you the details. It is www.blacktulip.net. So um, blacktulip.net. Yeah. Um, there is a hyphen between black and tulip. It's two separate words. Okay. A dash. Yeah. Okay. So I again, for our listeners, black-tulip.net. And that's where we can go to purchase copies of the book it's beautifully produced the illustrations before i let you go tell me a little bit about the illustrations which are lovely well the the idea behind the book was to try and create a book with the resources that we have to do it 
the way I want to do it, to do it uh, with the help of family and friends, and to have a book which is um, not so difficult to achieve when you follow the recipes. So uh, the illustrations, the beautiful illustrations are made by my friend Chaya Vardi, who is a professional artist and illustrator. Um, the photographs in the book are made by me. I took all the photographs. And the reason I did that and didn't employ um, a professional photographer is because I wanted people to see the dishes how they are, not enhanced, not embellished, not um, added onto. And I wanted people to see that this is achievable. That is what the food looks like. My husband jokingly said that we actually ate the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so that's yeah, how it came about. Um, but my husband is actually quite good at doing all the technical stuff. And, and together we did all the graphics because I have a little bit of background in design. So we just put it together ourselves. And it really is a big achievement because it is not simple, as you know. Yeah. And, um, and the pictures are beautiful, the photographs, and do make it a realistic expectation of how you're going to put this on a table. Um, because again, some of the secrets behind food photography would horrify somebody um, with, by putting in yeah, a plaster to make the whipped cream look like whipped cream. Um, Zima, thank you so much for the book um, and for taking the time to create something that I think so many of us will take away, if nothing else, a really great dinner or two. But uh, I think it encourages us all to, to, to think about all of the connections that we make through food, family traditions. Um, so uh, we look forward to book number two. And again, uh, before we go out, it's black-tulip.net go get a couple of copies for you and your family, everybody. And we hope to see you. Maybe you'll come here and do a cooking demonstration in our coacher kitchen someday. I would love to. No problem whatsoever. Anytime. <laughs>